0: Now, the the title of today's sermon is An Offensive Mission, An Offensive Mission. Now, when I'm saying offensive, I'm saying this as you offend someone, not you're on offense in basketball, okay? Offensive Mission. And I love the title of this sermon because it's so joyful, right? On Mother's Day, we're going to offend everyone. There's enough offense in this for all of us. Now, If you're new to Story Church, uh, we are are preaching through the gospel of Mark. We're doing it for this whole year. And, and, And so the gospel of Mark is in the Bible's New Testament. And there's four gospel accounts in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of the gospel accounts gives you a different view on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done. Mark in of itself is a very fast moving, urgent, kind of hit you in the face gospel account. He pulls no punches and he moves really quickly. And he is trying to help us see the proclamation and the demonstration of Jesus, what Jesus preaches, what he proclaims, what he teaches, namely the message of the kingdom, and then what he comes underneath that proclamation and demonstrates that he is a healer, that he does miracles, that he reconciles, that he brings together a, a diverse group of people and unifies them under his blood. This is what Mark is about, the proclamation and the demonstration of Jesus Christ, And in the first six chapters of the gospel of Mark, we kind of get a book within the book. This is a transition period over the next three or four weeks. As we walk through Mark 6, we're gonna transition out of the first part of Mark into the second part. And the first part of Mark, the first six chapters, are all answering this question. Who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? We've asked that question many weeks in a row. And even just last week, Pastor Chris Lewis preached on who is this Jesus? And what did he tell us? He told us this Jesus is the one who is able to do anything. He is powerful to do anything and save anyone, and he is gracious to reach into the hardest of places and save. That no one and nothing is too far gone for Jesus, and no one and nothing is outside the power of Jesus, his grace and his power. And this week, we're going to kind of get a different angle on the answer of that question who is this Jesus? And it's gonna be a little less sexy than the last five weeks, okay? Here's what I mean by that. For the last last few weeks, last five chapters, what have we seen? We've seen Jesus heal. We've seen him restore. We've seen him cast out demons. We've seen him uh, make a paralyzed man walk. Just last week, we saw a woman who was hemorrhaging for 12 weeks with a touch get healed and a 12-year-old little girl laying on her deathbed with a word, raised. This is what Jesus is doing, showing his magnificent and marvelous power. But now we're gonna transition into the period of Jesus's ministry when we start seeing the foreshadowing of the cross in clearer and clearer ways. Jesus is gonna beginning putting the defining lines around who he is and what his kingdom looks like. Okay, So he is going to show himself to be more than a healer, more than a miracle worker, more than a deliverer. Jesus is not less than those things, but Jesus is so much more than those things. And he's drawing some lines in the sand and saying, hey, are you in this thing for me or are you in this thing for the stuff that comes with me? Okay, we've talked about that before. Are we merely a part of this thing called Christianity because it's a little hobby and Jesus becomes my get out of jail free card? Or are we in this thing because Jesus is Lord and King and Savior and Master of all things in my life. Jesus is beginning to draw the lines in, those sand, in, in the sand on those things. And what do we see happen? Look at verse three with me. The word says, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? Pause right there. They're asking the question, who is this Jesus? Is this not the son of Mary? Is this not the carpenter's son? But then, look, what, look how verse three ends. And they took offense at him. Okay, As they begin to answer the question, who is this Jesus? Jesus begins to offend them. Jesus begins to offend them. Um, that word offense in the Greek is the word scandalon. That's how we get our word scandalous. Jesus and the gospel is scandalous. It's offensive to our our sensibilities. It's offensive to the way of our world. It's offensive to our flesh. And we begin to take offense because the gospel is so scandalous in the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God and in his word. Now, Jesus, what he wants to do is begin calling people to himself and say, hey, when I heal, when I restore, when I deliver, when I do these things for you, it's not just because I wanna do these things for you, it's because I want you to be full of faith in me. Tim Keller is particularly helpful here. Tim Keller says this, Jesus's miracles were not magic tricks designed to prove how powerful he was, but signs of the kingdom to show how his redemptive power operated. His miracles always healed and restored and delivered people in ways, here's the key, that revealed how we are to find him by faith and have our lives transformed by him. So again, Jesus is saying, hey, I want you to come to me, I want, you to, I want you to find healing, I want you to seek deliverance, I want you to come to me, but I don't want you to come to me just for the byproduct to be near me, I want you to come to me, to be renewed by me, to have faith in me, to be transformed by me, and the fact is, when we begin to hear those things, we begin to get offended at Jesus, and I'll kind of explain this a little more as we go before I do that, uh, I want to talk for a second about this idea of offense. I'm not sure there's any greater sin in today's world than to offend someone, right? This is where we get this kind of nonsensical movement called cancel culture, okay? We offend someone. It's the greatest sin you can commit. Therefore, I cancel you. And in our world, offense is always equal to hatred, okay? When I offend you, it must be because I hate you. And what happens as a result of of this movement? What happens as a result of this offense leading to hatred? it, It leads to timidity with gospel conversations, it leads, us, it leads us to fear in, in having conversations around who Jesus is and what the truth of God's kingdom is. This has led to the widening of the poles between opposing people groups who differ on some things who otherwise would be united under the blood of Jesus Christ, right? Right? And so we can even we can even just do a little thought experiment over the last year. We've seen this happen. Division, widening of poles, because I choose to offend you. And it might be something as, as minor as a mask, right? I choose to wear my mask. I've chosen to wear it and I've been thoughtful about it. And yet you choose not to wear yours and we're terrified to have conversation about this. So we just kind of separate from each other and we no longer have relationship. And we could flip that on its head and say, I choose not to wear my mask. And again, it's led to this conversation not happening, widening poles, timidity with each other, fear with each other, instead of us having good Christian, gospel-centered, civil discourse around these things. Because trust me, I know people on every side of this issue who have come to it through thoughtful Christian lenses. But we refuse to hear. Why? Because I'm offended by your personal decisions. Now, here's the thing with offense. A offense a is a sliding scale, and it's completely dependent upon your context and your place, where you find yourself geographically in this world, where you find yourself in this country. Now, let me kind of parse that out a little bit. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be careful here. In the Western world, it is offensive, the deepest offense you can do do in 2021. It is to have questions and seek answers and have pushback and, and point out brokenness when it comes to the LGBTQ plus community, okay? Now, now let me just kind of pause there and step off to the side. Um, if you're someone who struggles in this area, let me just say, we wanna struggle with you. We, we wanna do that. And, and having conversations with people in that community is never grounds for bigotry, It's never grounds for judgmentalism. It's grounds for grace-based, gentle, loving, relationship-based conversations. I want to say that, okay? Now, with that said, in today's world, to push back on that community is the greatest offense you can do in the Western world. It's the greatest offense you can do in today's age and in this place. Now, that's a uniquely Western and a uniquely modern thing. Okay, go to the global south, go to Peru, go to the Middle East, go to the global east, go to, Thailand. go to Cambodia, okay, where I've spent a lot of time. And the LGBTQ community is not even a thing. Traditional marriage and gender and sexuality reigns supreme there. Now, what's offensive there? Is, is kind of an honor shame culture that exists out there where, where the, the, the ingredient of the day is to be a good person, a moralistic person, to find my value in never bringing shame to my family's name and never wronging someone. So, so moralism reigns supreme. What, moralism in the West, what is that? Like we don't care about that. We don't bat an eye at that, but we go move to somewhere in the Middle East and we don't think about honor shame, man, we're gonna deeply offend some people. Now, here's the truth. There's enough offense in the gospel for all of us. Time's up for me. I'm hearing. (laughs) I love it. Now, We begin walking on eggshells because of this, right? Timidity, fear in conversations, unwillingness to press in. Where we're scared of stepping on eggshells, Jesus comes onto the scene and he stomps on all of them, right? Jesus has enough offense for every single one of us. Said in a biblical way, Jesus is the stumbling block, Jesus is the stumbling block. We see that all over the New Testament. We'll get into why that is here in a second. So as a Christian, I want you to think about something. Uh, There's a church in North Carolina that, that I've been deeply influenced by called Summit Church. They have a saying, Jesus is offensive enough, nothing else should be. All right, Jesus is offensive enough, nothing else should be. So our job as Christians is not to be jerks, not to be dummies, not to get in the way, not to hurt people, not to go out of our way to make people feel bad about themselves. Our job is always clothed in love, led by the grace and mercy of Jesus to step into conversations and trust that the gospel itself has enough in it to offend, okay? So I just wanna say all of that right off the bat. What we've already seen then in Mark is a lot of offense. In the first few chapters, we saw Jesus offending the Pharisees and the religious elite. So in today's world, that'd be kind of like the, the intellectual community, the, the elite in society, the wealthy, the educated, the rich, those at the top of society. Jesus began to offend them. Why? Because Jesus welcomed the poor and the broken and the marginalized and the oppressed into his home and into his life. We saw Jesus look out at a tax collector and say, you, come eat with me. Even though this tax collector oppressed and and marginalized his own Jewish community, Jesus said, no, no, come with me. You're mine. I love you. And the religious elite, what'd they do? Man, they lost their brains at Jesus. They lost their minds at Jesus. They Jesus offended them. Now, what we've got in chapter six then is Jesus going into his hometown. We see that in verse one. His hometown is a place called Nazareth. We've talked about this before. Nazareth is not in the, in the Old Testament. It's not in any other ancient sources, Jewish sources. It's, it's unknown until Jesus. This little podunk town out in the middle of nowhere where no one's educated, everyone's blue collar, everyone's poor, and Jesus walks in there and he begins to offend them as well. They took offense at him. There's enough offense to go around for all of us. So here's what we can do today. There's two options, okay? The first option is we could be like Thomas Jefferson. Old Tommy J, I bet you didn't expect him to be in a sermon this morning. Thomas Jefferson was famous, for cutting out parts of the New Testament that talked about the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus. He wanted Jesus simply to be a moral example. So here's what we can do. We can cut out the hard parts of Jesus, the parts that confront us, the parts that reveal our sinfulness, the parts that reveal the tendencies of our flesh. We can cut that out, okay? That's not the way to live or we can press in and see that the offense of Jesus is unlike cultural offense, right? In cultural offense, it's based in hatred, right? In Jesus's offense, it's always based in and flowing into love. Jesus offends in order to show us a better way Jesus when he offends us when he confronts us when he reveals our tendencies what he's trying to do is show us all the false stories that we're living within and he wants to show us his story which is a better way which is the way of hope which is the way of joy which is the way of life which is the way of mercy this is why Jesus offends because he wants to show stop trusting in yourself Stop trusting in this world. Look to me to get all the things you're looking for. So his offense is not to repel us. His offense is to draw us, okay? So here's what we're gonna do. That's all intro, by the way. Here's what we're gonna do. We have three parts of today's sermon. We're gonna talk about the offensive message the offensive messiah and the offensive missionaries okay and the first part the offensive message is where I'm going to spend the bulk of my time the next two sections I'm going to briefly touch on them but next week hey here's a preview John the Baptist is going to lose his head literally so come on back for that we're going to get a, we're going to get a better picture into kind of the second portion of today's sermon so I'm going to spend the bulk of my time in the first 6 verses um and by the way, uh, I just want to say this before we jump in. Uh, at Story Church, we, we preach through the Bible. Um, and we don't do this in kind of a, a cherry-picking way, finding all the verses that are, that are easy and fun. We want to do this where the next lineup is what we're going to preach. And here's what that does for us, church. That yields us to the Word of God. That constrains us to the Word of God, to all of it. And we believe at Story Church that the Bible is our authority. And we believe the Bible demands our obedience, even and especially the parts we don't like. So this is why we preach through books of the Bible because we wanna go into the parts that are hard. And the truth is, chapter six is hard. This last week, as I was studying this and dwelling on this and look, even looking forward to next week, I found myself at certain points recoiling. And crin- this is just hard, okay? A prophet is not with honor in his own hometown, Come on, I'm born in Rancho, raised in Rancho. That's hard. Jesus, in other parts of this, he, he, he marveled at their unbelief. That's hard. But listen, just because it's hard doesn't mean we get to avoid it. We press into it with empty hands of faith saying, Jesus, teach me and Jesus, help me. And he will, he is faithful. All right, so the first portion the offensive message. This is in verses one and two and 11 and 12, all right? So, so look at verses one and two with me. He, that's Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Now jump down to verse 11. He's speaking to his disciples after he's commissioned them and Jesus says, if any place will not receive you and they'll not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Remember, Mark is primarily about the proclamation of Jesus. So what do we see? Jesus goes into synagogues and begins teaching. That's not new. Jesus uh, c- continues teaching and preaching to these people. That's not new. Jesus sends his disciples out two by two and commissions them to teach and preach as his ambassadors. That's not new. And we get a clue into what the message is. Look again at verse 12 with me. So they went out and what did they proclaim? That people should repent. From moment go at the beginning of Mark and Matthew and Luke, we hear the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The message of Jesus and the message of his followers is the message of repentance. Now, repentance to our modern sensibilities, repentance to our flesh is an offensive message. Why is that? This idea of repentance begins with the need to repent. To repent means you are seeking forgiveness, you are seeking restoration, and where does that begin? It's all sourced in the fact that we're sinners that need to repent, that need forgiveness, all right? Without sin, repentance is unnecessary. Now, here's the truth for me, here's the truth for you, here's the truth for all of us the world over. We're sinners, Okay? Hear me. That's not me speaking. I don't like to say that. That's the Bible speaking. So if you've got a problem, take it up with God. Don't take it up with me. God is telling all of us, we're sinners and we need to repent. And I hear that if someone were to walk up to me right now, and so, I mean, plenty of you do, and say, you're a sinner. Here's what I do, man. I get angry. I want to self-justify. I want to defend myself. What? I don't like hearing that. Who wants to hear that, that you're a sinner? It's offensive. And again, we live in a modern world where this concept of sin cannot exist. You do you, I do me. As long as we're not hurting each other, there can't be any sin in this world. Now here's the problem. We have turned our world into primarily a horizontal world. Here's what I mean by that. We've turned our world into a, 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 a person-to-person comparison, and this is how we get our definition of sin. And when you begin to compare horizontally, it's not possible that you're a sinner because you can always look to your left or to your right and see someone who's worse than you. Right? And you puff your chest up and you feel like you're doing all right and you're not a sinner. I'm better than that person after all. Um, Katie came busting in the house a few days ago, got home from the gym. She does that a lot. She uh, comes home from the gym. She's like, you're not gonna believe what I just heard on the radio. I'm like, oh boy, she's listening to the radio again. Um, Ryan's Roses, was that what it was on? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm just throwing her under the bus. And she said, Pew Research just released a new poll this last week that 47, nearly 50 percent of Americans think they're the best person they know. In other words, 100 percent of people looking at you think you're a narcissist, all right? 47 percent think they're the best person they know. That's unbelievable. Now, Here's the deal. We do that from a comparison-based world. No one thinks you're perfect except you. No one likes your ideas as much as you. No one talks to you as much as you. No one thinks you're as brilliant as you, right? And we're all in that category. It's not just any individual. It's all of us, me, right? Man, I'm the greatest in my own mind. Can't touch me. LeBron's not the king, But here's the sticking point. We've taken God out of that equation. We don't primarily live in a horizontal world. The Bible tells us over and over and over again, we live in a vertical world. And if you wanna play this comparison game, we don't play this one to another. We're all sinners at the foot of the cross. We play this comparison game with God. And what do we see with God? We see someone who is holy and blameless and spotless and perfect and just, and he is gracious and merciful and glorious, and he is all the things we are not. And so the Bible says, all right, you wanna play that comparison? game? Let's do that. Do that with God. And here's what you're going to see. You have fallen short of the glory of God. You have missed the marks of his demands. And the Bible will tell us because of our sin, we are dead, both physically and spiritually. Spiritually and then one day physically dead in our sins and trespasses. Now, again, I hope, like me, when I'm saying that, you're kind of cringe. I'm not getting joy out of saying that when I look in the mirror and I begin to look at the scriptures and the scripture opens my heart before God, what do I see, man? I see a broken man. I see a man in need of grace. I see a man in need of the mercy of God. I see a man who, like Paul, says, I am the chief of sinners. Now, as we talk about sin, I want to give you a definition. I heard this last week from John Piper that kind of levels the playing field for all of us. It'll be on your screens, on the screen. Piper says this, I'm giving a very radical New Testament definition of sin when I say that. Here's my definition. Any thought, any attitude, any word, any facial expression, any gesture, any action that does not flow from treasuring of Jesus is sin. Sin is not just big bad deeds like murder or stealing or adultery or even more regular sins like dishonesty or foul language or impatience. Sin is a condition of the heart that is bent away from God in preference for other things. And sin is any expression of that preference in our mind or attitude or behavior. Sin will be with us. Yes, it will sadly, and it breaks our heart. Sin will be with us until that inner condition is wholly obliterated in the presence of Christ, okay? Any thought, any action, he goes as far as to say any facial expression that is not born out of treasuring and worshiping and exalting Christ is sin. That's all of us, church. And yet, remember in God's economy his offense is not based in hatred and meant to repel his offense is meant to invite into a better way and this is where we get the the message of the apostles repent the message of repentance. Repentance in of itself is a gracious and merciful invitation from God to leave our sin behind and step into the story and way of Jesus and find everything we're starving for in this world. To step into the story of Jesus is to step into the presence of Jesus, to treasure Jesus, to worship Jesus, and to put to death all the sin that's hanging us up in the background. Now, I want to walk through then, what is repentance? How can we step into this as a church? How can we see our sin and walk in the way of repentance? Uh, Thomas Watson uh, was an English Puritan in the 1600s, and and he's particularly helpful on this concept. Uh, He defines repentance like this. Repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. You hear that? It's a grace, it's a gift, an unmerited gift from God's grace to, to humble ourselves and be renewed by Jesus. Okay, <laughs> this is what repentance is. And Watson will go on to give six key ingredients to a lifestyle of repentance. We're gonna walk through those six things together. We'll have notes here, they're, they're on, it's on the liturgy if you wanna download it. But I really think, church, we have an opportunity uh, to to walk in a level of repentance and holiness that's unfounded in our midst. And listen, I don't want you to be scared around this, okay? Uh, The New Testament is really clear to us that there's two types of holiness, okay? There's positional holiness and there's functional holiness or righteousness, Okay, When you come to Jesus in faith, you are fully, freely, forever forgiven of sin by Jesus. You are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. So what that means is when you come to Jesus in faith for the first time, God sees you not as an enemy, not as an outcast, but as a son or a daughter. When he sees you, he doesn't see your record. He sees Christ's record. He sees Christ's righteousness. And God says, you're mine now and forever. You are always with me. You're my child. You're a part of my kingdom. I love you. That is positional grace and positional holiness from God. Now there's a second part then, and this is called functional holiness. Functional holiness is when we grow in our holiness so that our actual lives begin to match up with our position before God, okay, where we are becoming what we already are. We are growing in our holiness on a functional level, And the door through which we grow in holiness is the door of ongoing repentance. The Bible never says repentance is a one-time thing. Repentance is not just a one-time thing to get into the family of God. Repentance is the daily act of every Christian. Because sin is a daily reality for every Christian and so the the new testament wants to bid us hey walk in repentance and your holiness will grow and here's the truth friends here's the greatest thing as your holiness grows everything else instinctively follows your joy follows your peace follows your comfort in christ follows the hope you have in this world and the world to come follows Okay, circumstantial things in this world can't toss us to and fro because we are anchored in Christ and as our holiness grows, man, we have everything we truly want. So as I say, this is an invitation based in love. It truly is. And and, and I don't know about you, but I hear those words. I hear love and hope and peace and joy. I hear all those things and my heart starves for more of those things. My heart longs for more of those things in this world. And I know the way to unlock that is walking in a lifestyle of repentance. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at the six key ingredients that, that uh, Thomas Watson gives us for walking in repentance. First, he says to us, repentance begins with the sight of sin. We see our sin clearly, and more than that, we see ourselves as sinners clearly. Okay, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. You get that? Our sin flows out of the fact that we are born in iniquity, conceived in iniquity. Our hearts are wicked and darkened and we sin because of that. And the Bible wants to tell us, hey, see, repentance starts with you seeing yourself as a sinner. So about 53% of us, according to Pew, can see ourselves that way. 47% are like, me? No way. No way. Come on, we gotta see our sin. Second, the second key ingredient is to feel sorrow for your sin, anguish over your sin, grief for your sin, pain that primarily we sin against a holy God and his beautiful design for this world. You understand that, right? When God gives us demands and commands for this world, he doesn't do this because he wants to restrict us. He does this because he wants to invite us into the most beautiful design that could ever be. The life of joy. We look at the garden in Eden uh, in, in Genesis 1 and 2, and we see harmony and perfection and bliss. And that's how God created this world. And that's how God's renewing this world. And God wants us to feel sorrow that through our sin, we have broken that harmony. We have turned our backs on him and we have refused his be- beautiful design for this world. Now, sorrow for sin is a godly grief, not a worldly grief. Okay, a worldly grief is just kind of temporary. You just feel it for a moment because you want everyone to pat you on the back. Godly grief is pain in the soul that I've turned from God. Oftentimes accompanied by tears and community and friends and scripture and truth and it's enduring and it's fuel to walk in repentance. So for a second, we feel a sorrow for sin. Third, we confess sin, okay? Now, again, um, oftentimes, I've personally walked in confession the wrong way, and and I see it done the wrong way a lot. We kind of get in community, and we glibly confess our sins. Man, I did it again, right? And again, we just kind of want to pat on the back for that, but that's not how the Bible defines our confession of sin, in, in, in the Bible's definition, when we confess our sin, here's what we're doing. We are voluntarily passing judgment on ourselves. You hear that? No one else, on yourself. You are voluntarily passing judgment on yourself and you are agreeing with God that your sin is wicked and it's hateful and it leads to wrath and punishment. Again, happy Mother's Day, right? All these joyous words here. And here's what we do. We name specific sins in our confession, okay? And and Paul will tell us over and over again in the New Testament, because grace abounds, can sin abound all the more? By no means. So we don't confess sin just just because we know we can go do it again. We confess sin because we wanna grow to look like Christ. Number four, we feel shame for sin. And I know shame is a dirty word in our culture, but it's not in the Bible. We see all the way back when our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God and ate of that fruit. What does the text tell us? They felt naked and ashamed. Shame is not what we've turned it into. Shame is us feeling naked and impure before God, making us feel like we've fallen short of God, which we have. Number five, the next ingredient is hatred of sin. Okay, we develop a distaste for specific sins. We hate when we sin deep in our bones. And we can hear Paul again in Romans chapter seven saying, I do the very thing I don't wanna do. And I don't do the things I do wanna do. And we can almost hear the hatred in his tone of his sin, the distaste. We need to have a growing appetite for Christ and our appetite for sin needs to be waning and going away into the background because the truth is we cannot love Jesus fully until we hate our sin deeply. Our sin and Jesus cannot coexist. We must grow in our hatred of sin. And then finally... Repentance finishes with a continuous turning from our sin and returning to Jesus, where we continually turn our back on those specific sins that we hate and we look to Jesus and we look to his word and we look to his people to find all the things we're looking for. This is what repentance is. We see our sin. We feel sorrow for our sin. We confess our sin in community. We feel shame for our sin. We hate that sin sin that holds us up. And then we turn our backs on it. And what do we find? A loving and a gentle and a merciful and a kind and a gracious savior that's not standing over us like a taskmaster. What's up, buddy? Thank you. Right in the middle of the gospel, buddy. We don't find a, a, a cruel taskmaster standing there with a paddle in his hand, saying, hands on the wall, boy. Uh Uh-uh. What do we find? We find a savior that says, you're mine. I love you. You're forgiven. It's wiped away. I paid for it all on the cross. When I went to the grave, your sin went with me. When I rose from the grave, you have new life through me. I defeated Satan. I defeated darkness. I defeated brokenness. I rule and I reign over all things and your hope is in me alone. That's who we find when we repent, okay? We gotta get all this imagery of of bad parents and bad authority figures out of our minds who have failed us and hurt hurt us and wounded us We need to turn our backs on that. We need to see the God of the Bible who says, I love you, in spite of you, I'll never stop. You're mine forever. That's why repentance is loving. That's why repentance is a gift. That's why repentance is good for us. We get reunited to our Father in heaven through the Son by the power of the Spirit, and we are with him forever. And then we get all the things that come with him. We get all the inheritance through Christ. We get a future that's incredibly bright. We get a community of people, a family of people to be with in this life. We get hope in today and in tomorrow. Everything our hearts starve for, that's what we get when we walk in repentance. Okay? This is why it's a gift. So yes, it is offensive to say you're a sinner and you are, and I am. But there's a gift on the other end of that to walk in holiness through repentance. Now, here's what I'm gonna do. We'll save the rest for next week because I'm like three pages into my manuscript and we're running out of time. Um, man, I think we, church, we have such a good opportunity to walk in repentance I just, we've all seen it in the last year. Just deep brokenness in our world, deep disunity in our world. We've seen racial strife. We've seen uh, people marginalized. We've seen relationships broken, okay? And it's not just big sins out there. We've also sinned in our own homes against our spouses or our children or our parents, We've all sinned in our workplaces. We've all hurt people, but primarily what we've done, it's not about hurting other people. It's about sinning against the holy God. And we've all done that. Remember, any thought, any action, any gesture, any deed, any facial expression that's not born out of treasuring Christ, okay? And I think now, church, we have an opportunity to walk in a level of repentance we never have. And, and it's kind of a scary place, but remember, on the other end of repentance is everything we long for. So I want to invite you, just just bow your heads for a second. I want to invite you, wherever you are today, whatever sin that you've committed, even this morning, right? I want you to see that clearly. I want you to name that before God. He hears you. I want you to feel sorrow for that. I want you to turn back to God. Maybe you're not a Christian. You've never repented before. Hear me. Christ forgives anything. Confess and he will forgive. When we confess, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, okay? And if you are a Christian, I wanna invite you to continue to live in this lifestyle of repentance. Maybe there's someone specific you spoke a harsh word to. Today, don't let today finish without reaching out to them and reconciling. Maybe there's someone you've harbored thoughts about. Maybe there's someone you deleted on Facebook because they're loud about their political opinions. Maybe there's someone you refuse to talk to. Maybe there's someone when you see them at church, you dip into the bathroom because you don't wanna see their face. Whatever it might be, I want you to see it. I want you to name it and trust me, God forgives you hear that. We're gonna celebrate communion in a second. And then I want you, before today finishes, to just reconcile that, seek forgiveness, and find everything you're looking for on the other end of that. I'm just gonna give you 30 more seconds to do that. Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that on the cross, Christ willingly hung in our place, bearing our sin, bearing our punishment, bearing your wrath. And he died the death we deserved and went into the tomb. And in that tomb, he buried every one of our sins. And when he was raised to new life, we were raised with him. We are fully, freely, forever forgiven. And as people who are holy because of the righteousness of Christ, I pray that our daily lifestyle would match that spiritual reality. God, would you place within the people of Story Church a spirit of repentance, a confession of sin, a hatred of sin, and a seeking of reconciliation and restoration. It's possible. Would you do that, God, by your Spirit's power? And then as we grow in our holiness, both corporately and individually, God, would you give us witness in this world? Would you give us joy in this world? Would you give us peace in this world? God, these are all the things you promised to your people. We want them and we know we can have them through repentance, God. We pray this in Christ's precious name, amen.